Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. We can start with uh, Samuel. Samuel, you are on the air. Hey, guys. How you going? Good. How are you? We, we are going great. That's good. Um... I just had a bit of a conversation with one of, with one of my friends um, about uh, Lou Dort, of all people, and, like, I want to know what he's worth, like, in a trade in the abstract. Like, I won't say how much I think he's worth, because um, I don't want to, like, alter your thinking, but I want to know what I think you guys think he's worth. Yeah, I guess if we're thinking about try, trying to trade him, uh, I don't know, Dan, I mean, I guess probably the place to start is just what is Lou Dort right now uh, at this particular time? And so I think of Dort as one of the league's better perimeter defenders. Now it is generally true that perimeter defense is less valuable than interior defense, depending on whether we're talking regular season versus playoffs and the versatility of that. And then Dort offensively is interesting because he's still somewhat of a low volume player. I mean, he's not, not all the way. He's, his usage is up to 20%, but he's not doing a ton of playmaking. And I don't think you really want him to anyway. So that's not necessarily like a demerit making, making his threes at a decent rate so far. So I, I like Dort. I like him a lot. I think that also players with his physical, like, you know, being strong and, and developing more nuance to his offensive game generally those guys can can do well later on and remember Dort's only 21 he only played that one year at Arizona State so I think that he like I don't think he's at necessarily the level of like a we've talked about the Robert Covington return of that being you know two first round picks or an equivalent player so like RJ Hampton in the first or something like that I I don't know that he's all the way there yet um though Dort played you know his defense looked good in the playoffs but I'd be interested to see if, Nate, if you think he's there. Because remember the, the nuances of, of this, because Dort's contract is actually meaningfully more favorable because you could theoretically get match rights. Yeah, that's, if you're saying that, well, I, is, can you get match rights on him? I think he's got three years. Well, so he has another go, year, right? but then the, the fourth year they did, Sam Presti did the thing of it being a team option. So theoretically, you could decline the option in 22, make him restricted, as I understand it. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, yeah, because it was only, uh, yeah, it's this year. Yeah, so it would be after after three years uh, that that would be the case. So, uh, yeah, you could make him a restricted free agent. But certainly at, at that price, uh, he's very valuable, and you can have the, the match rights. A few things. Number one, as a one-on-one defender, you know, I think it, there's a thought that he could be kind of a Marcus Smart sort of guy. As a team defender, though, I have not been particularly impressed by him. It's going to take more experience for him to get there. Not really a steals and blocks guy either. Some also like a really bad rebounder, and he doesn't pass, as you mentioned. And that 20% usage, part of that is just being on this OKC team that has few other options. And the 32% three-point shooting, that's still pretty low. That's not at the point where you're not going to get left. Whereas Robert Covington, his volume is much higher. Like he's an established track record as a shooter. So 
I agree. I wouldn't necessarily put him in that category yet. He could develop, but I still think you're kind of paying for what it is for him in the future. And you hope that he can get there as a shooter. And he still is, it's a little wonky there. And you also, I haven't really seen him go up against, you know, Kawhi and LeBron, those type of guys in a playoff series. I'm not sure you can put him on those guys necessarily. So I think like one first round pick would probably be about where I, I would put a, his trade value. Uh, Sam, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought because of his age, because he's taken a step up in usage, because like, as we say here in Shirley, he's built like a brick shit house. Like he has got that potential to be oh. like a that, pretty That's good what I say about semi Ojale too. I, I, I'm sorry for co-opting the Australian phrase then because... Uh, yeah, no, of, of course, I agree. Um, but like he's, he's pretty young. He's, like you said, he's up his usage. He's pretty versatile um, and he's got such a favorable contract. I feel like because he's got that, what, eight or nine year difference on Robert Covington, I probably said maybe two middling firsts. Um, but I mean, it just depends on the team, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's true. If you think about it, who out there is going to say, hey, this guy, because you, you make a trade like that thinking that this guy is going to put you over the top. And again, if, if he were just a little bit bigger than I think, you know, like James Harden, he can guard. Can he guard Kevin Durant? You know, that that's that's another question for me. And maybe he can. We just haven't seen it yet. So you're, you've got that potential, but you also have more question marks as well. That, that was a good start, Danny. Uh, you want to move on here? Yeah, let's move on to Zach. You are next on the air. Zach, you there? Okay. Um, Zach, if you if you get back on, um, we will we will we'll put you. Are you there, Zach? I just saw saw it change. Are you there? Um, if you, if we see if I see you again in the queue, I will I'll put you back on. But instead, we will go to Chris. Chris, you are next up. Hi guys, big fan of the podcast. I was wondering if we're taking the COVID protocols into enough account in our analysis. I was just looking at like the number of player days. Uh, spending the COVID protocols for each team. And, like, the Atlanta Hawks and the Celtics are jockeying for position for the four seed, right? And the Celtics have 119 more player days in the COVID protocols than the Atlanta Hawks. Um, And I haven't really seen that mentioned at all. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you kind of, to me, you think about player on a, I, I, the way I'm trying to do it, whether I'm succeeding or not is an open question, is to think about player unavailability as kind of an, a, a single thing, whether it's injury-based or COVID-based. And so, like, for example, the Atlanta Hawks have had a bunch of unavailability due, due to injuries. And I also think the Hawks are worse than the Celtics at, you know, mutual full strengths and everything else like that. But it is a useful element of the discussion because – if you want to argue, you know, representativeness of the sample, hopefully, you know, odds are based on where, you know, where the country is going, where, you know, we're seeing more and more players getting vaccinated as well, that there will be fewer absences of that of that ilk. Now, whether they're as random as injuries is an interesting question, but absences are absences to an extent. I think that that, that is definitely true. Yeah, and I the way I've tried to incorporate it, I, hopefully people who listen to a, a lot of our stuff will agree that we tried to talk about this a lot is just that I discount what's happened, just uh, particularly the overall statistical resume in this regular season more than any other regular season that we see. Not only the COVID stuff, but more injuries, more games. It's just this regular season is further away from playoff basketball probably than any regular season that we've seen in Boston is a perfect example. And then you can say that Utah is another one when you throw in both injuries and 
COVID absences, they really haven't had any issues at all. And so, you know, a team like San Antonio or Toronto or you mentioned Boston, Dallas, a lot of these teams have had real struggles. And the thing that we probably need to talk about maybe a little bit more is just are some of these players coming back from actually having had COVID? You know, like Jason Tatum, are they going to be affected during the playoffs? Maybe that's the one thing where the regular season does matter. But I, I think you make a great point there, ultimately, that it should be talked about more. And particularly for these teams that have just had their entire season wrecked at for months at a time with COVID, that that's not what they are going to be necessarily in the playoffs. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. I was just like shocked when I looked at the numbers. Um, like 12 teams have over 100 less player days um, for in comparison to Boston. Um, Boston had 100 more player days in the COVID protocols um, than 12 um, entire teams in the league. And then obviously Fournier just got in the protocols again for at least a week. So I was just fascinated um, by that. But that's all I had. Um, well, well, Chris, I'll go. One, one other really challenging element of this season is going to be figuring out the precedent for next year because something that that happens so often is that we forget the context by the time we're relying on the data again so yeah we'll remember it now and we'll remember that the Celtics missed all this time or or I mean the way the Raptors season has been sidetracked not only in terms of days missed but also in terms of the impact and the chronology of their season and then in September October of this year when we're getting ready to do things it's like Oh, well, the, Tor- the Toronto Raptors, they were, you know, slightly positive point differential. They had this. Are we going to remember that? Are we going to remember that the Jazz were extraordinarily healthy? I- I'm guessing by that point, not only will we have lost some of those threads, but I think a lot of our brethren will too. And that's totally justified. It's going to be a- an ongoing challenge for us to get this right. But uh, thanks so much to Chris for for asking the question. Um, yeah, we could do a quick little live reaction. Um, Rob McIntyre brought it up, and I mean, I have I have tweet deck going strong. And the Miami Heat are going to sign Dwayne Dedman to fill. I, I think this is their last roster spot. Any any thoughts, Nate? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether Dedman can still play or not, and what he's been doing. I think I always wonder with guys like him or Jamari Carroll, who hasn't gotten a peep as far as being signed that I've seen, where they're productive players, and then all of a sudden, just they have basically two thirds of a bad year, and all of a sudden, it's just assumed that the guy is done. And is that based on inside information, or is it just people overreacting? Particularly if it's a guy who kind of came out of nowhere. So I don't know how much he's going to play. He does kind of fit in a little bit. He can give him some backup minutes. Maybe he'll be competing with Precious Achua there. So I, I think he, to me, has more potential, at least, than some of these other guys. We've talked about how he was, in theory, a good fit last year in Sacramento as a shooter and shot blocker. And I thought he was a little bit better in Atlanta, at least. But the Pistons obviously stretched him, and he hasn't found a home since then. So I, I think it's a good signing, good risk, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I really like it as well. And I mean, it's worth remembering that in eighteen nineteen. Deadman started a majority of the season for the Hawks. He didn't play every game or start every game, but he took five threes per 36 minutes and made 38% of those. And those numbers, you know, went off, his shooting numbers went off a cliff on, on the Kings last year. But I don't know if that's, there's some reason to believe that the truth is either but not between those two numbers or anything else like that. And Deadman, the other thing you and I did, uh, uh, did Heat Knicks a week ago for the NBA cast 
is just having that kind of brutalier option. And Deadman, you know, he's not a perfect fit in that, but if you want somebody who can be a version of that guy and also be able to take and make trail threes and pick and pop stuff, I think that Deadman's a, a good option. And as you said, I think that sometimes players players get cast aside quickly. And there is a risk from Miami's perspective, because remember, while players don't have to be signed by the waiver date, they do have to be waived. And so maybe signing him, you know, this is the same argument I made against Dwight Howard last year, which worked out incredibly well for the Lakers. My argument was wrong of will signing this guy prevent you from signing someone else. But I like Deadman anyway. Let's get to questions. Um, Ricky Christmas, you are oh, actually sorry. Zach will be next because Zach was in and then fell out. Zach, you're next. Zach. Hi, hi guys. Uh, sorry, my audio fucked up the last time. Um, it happens. Uh, I, I just, uh, just want to say I really, really like the April Fools' podcast. It was hilarious. I, uh, I got a thorough <laughs> enjoyment out of that. I was just wondering uh, if, how the process was for that because I'd imagine it must be a, you guys had to plan it out pretty well to keep from breaking character as well as you did. Truthfully, uh, Danny and I have played off each other for so long. At this point, I spent about ten minutes writing up some ideas. Danny probably spent about five adding a few things and nixing some stuff, and then we just started and did it uh sometimes we we have like a google doc going so sometimes we can like write little messages to each other while the other person is talking in the google doc to see as we're going through but i don't i mean i don't we do that maybe twice during it or or something danny yeah I, i mean i think that what was interesting is there was a time i don't even know if nate remembers this like three four years ago i pitched doing an april fool's day episode but my as is often the case for me my ideas were overly elaborate and hard to execute and so this what was great about it was it was it was easy to play straight as long as you kind of got into that character like that was the way i kind of thought of it is i'm like oh totally like you just get into that and so that's easier than trying to do like a a, a different style of bit like this worked well within our skill set and uh it yeah so it was it was one of those it was a kind of funny as we did it and like because we recorded it fairly early on the day on the 30 uh, on the last day of march um and i i was kind of like i was excited about it i thought it i thought it turned out really well but it was so long because it was like it felt that was one of the longest gaps in my brain between when we recorded and when i started getting feedback because it's just like is this going are people going to appreciate this for what it is are they just going to be angry and thankfully most of the response has been positive and i didn't expect it all to be positive because that wouldn't have been good you know you want it to be a little bit negative i just enjoyed that we're it was a good chance to kind of make fun of the uh the more ridiculous things that we complain about every day uh the only thing that i wish i'd gotten more feedback i think the audience is too young was uh duty ebby returning to minnesota as a player development coach i I was hoping hoping at least one wolves fan would have got it maybe i'm persona non grata in minnesota these days anyway who knows i thought you were gonna go i I nearly made a a targai gombo reference but i didn't know i (laughs) i didn't i didn't have his name exactly right in my brain especially because of the miss the misname that happened in that draft that i just (laughs) i didn't want to get it exactly right so i wanted to get it exactly right if i was going to do it so that was fun yeah david david khan yeah yeah thanks david khan is is uh, scouring uh, Middle Eastern basketball leagues to bring the Wolves uh, back to prominence uh, in his in his new role, having returned. Um, uh, who's next here, Danny? So I uh, let's go to Ricky Christmas. It was going to be before, but then Zach came back. So Ricky, you're on. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, 
I'm a huge Pacers fan, and I've been pretty satisfied with what Kevin Pritchard's done from a value standpoint. I think that the Levert for Oladipo trade looks really great right now, and I really don't think they have any negative value contracts on the books. That said, none of the I, the players don't really fit together as a winning team. Um, I think obviously they're missing Warren a lot, but I still don't really see a cohesive vision for a long-term success here. And I'm thinking that they're in a really good position for a consolidation trade, like pick any three of their five really good players that they're none of them are all NBA players, really. But like if you just picking random ones, Brogdon, Sabonis, and Warren. If you package those three players, I feel like you could probably get an, an all-NBA level player. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and if there are any potential names that would make sense for something like that. Yeah, it's interesting that that, that you say that. The consolidation trade is something that's come up a, a lot recently. And Danny and I just actually talked about it in a mailbag that's coming out later this week. But I'm trying to think of like how many actual consolidation trades there really have been over the years. And in practicality, maybe it just doesn't end up happening that often. I guess what you would have to hope for as Indiana is, and I guess the other thing about the consolidation trade is, let's say Bradley, we'll use Bradley Beal as an example. The types of like the trade for a star, the star has to want to stay there. Is Bradley Beal going to want to stay in Indiana? I have no problem with Indiana personally, but I, it, that hasn't really been the track record of Indiana being a, a destination for stars. And so if you're going to trade for Bradley Beal and give up all that for him, A, the team Washington might be interested in, say, Sabonis and TJ Warren or, or whatever the package is if they want to continue to chase the eighth seed in the Leonsis era. That's not totally insane if they went that route instead of going for, say, the Warriors package of Wiseman and the Minnesota pick. But then you don't make that trade as Indiana unless Beal says, yeah, I'd love to stay in Indiana. And that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So I'm not sure really that that sort of a trade is out there uh, as of right now. What do you think, Danny? I think it's a, it's a pretty similar problem. And, and the other part of it is a lot of times when a very good player is changing teams, it's because they want to go in a very different direction. And you're right, the Wizards are actually an interesting one to point to that could theoretically go the other way just because Ted Leonsis has a well-known you know, preference to be a playoff contender. There are some teams that just don't want to rebuild. So you could see it in those kind of circumstances. But a lot of the, I mean, I think of more the James Harden sort of thing, or even whether we're talking Harden leaving Oklahoma City or Harden leaving Houston, where it was, you know, maybe a veteran or two, but then a lot of young picks. That is more often the way this is going to happen. That said, I think there is an opportunity, conceptually at least, for the Pacers to kind of more of a reshuffle rather than a consolidation. And I mean, I am, you know, Nate has more has more, let's call it negative attention from Pacers Twitter for his Sabonis stuff, but I'm largely <laughs> in a similar boat in terms of the idea of what is he, you know, he is a valuable player and I, and I want to appreciate Sabonis for what he is, but he is kind of the center version of the floor raiser rather than a ceiling raiser where there are defensive limitations that are going to come to the fore. And if your goal is to make the playoffs, maybe once in a while, win around. Sure. Absolutely. He helps you with that. But if the goal is to do more and, you know, ownership can decide what their goal is. I don't think of him there. And so I, you know, I was so supportive of the move that Orlando made giving up Vooch. And I think Sabonis has the potential to be better than, than Vooch has been. I mean, when you think about how young he is and everything else, 
But generally speaking, that's the type of move that I would be more interested in making of, I'm not saying necessarily like trade him for picks or anything like that, but sell high on, sell high on the player who maybe the league is a little bit, a little bit too high on, and then think that the rest of it can work. It is a gamble. Like for sure it is, but like, let's say, you know, it's, they could get a three and it doesn't even have to be a super, super great one though. You, of course you'd love it to be that, but Brogdon, Levert or somebody else. And then Levert's the sixth man, new player, Warren Turner. Like you could have something more dangerous going there to me as much as, as talented as Savonis is. Yeah, I I think Pacers Twitter is starting to get a little bit cooler on Sabonis. So uh, Nate might have seen uh, something. Oh, yeah, t- tell me more. Tell me more. Oh, I, I think Pacers <laughs> Twitter is very over uh, Turbonus, as we call it. Um, oh, I, I like I like Turbonus, by the way. I, that that is it, it's I, I like it when it sounds fun. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, do do you feel just since I have you here and you are a big Pacers fan, do you feel that uh, I and to a lesser extent Danny have been too hard on, on Sabonis or? or do you see where we're coming from? Um, I definitely see where you're coming from. I I think I feel a little bit more positively about it him than than you two do. Um, but I definitely understand where you're coming from. Uh, I thought the year that you said that he uh, was one of the worst all stars in recent memory, I actually thought Russ Westbrook was his individual season was a lot worse up to that point. He did end up turning it on after the All Star break. So maybe yeah. it's kind of your overall point is that he's a better overall player in general, etc. But I totally see what you're saying. His defense is a problem and it's really sticking out this year. Um, I think I would be okay with trading either of them if you got uh, someone that fit well next to them. I feel like a Miles Turner for Miles Bridges trade would have uh, made a lot of sense. But Miles Bridges or, yeah, or, oh, yeah, oh, it's a Charlotte. Okay, got it. Yeah, because they need a center and Miles Bridges is coming off the bench. I mean, I've, I was just hoping that was going to happen, but didn't happen but uh i feel like this team is right for a trade one way or the other so thank you yeah for the, the I, I was it, it's really a shame that warren hasn't been healthy because i thought these guys actually could do something this year but it, and i think they've underperformed since lavert has, has been healthy as well and they've had a ton of injuries here and there Sabonis has been out brogdon is always in and out of the lineup it seems like so it, it's it's been really tough for them to get a rhythm you want to move on here danny yeah let's do it um rob mcintyre you're next in line Hey guys, uh, I was wondering in a potential Nets Bucks series, how would you, as the, like the Nets, try to guard Giannis, and how would you anticipate they'll go about it? You know, to me, I think there's not really a great individual option to guard Giannis, and so you have a couple of ideas. One is that you're just going to switch everything, so you're not going to let him get a roll to the basket. You're always going to have someone in front of him. And then that you're just going to help a ton off the wings and make Milwaukee make shots. And because Giannis, frankly, is probably going to physically overwhelm pretty much anyone that you that they throw at him. Dan, can you think of anyone individually on the Nets that you would feel decent about guarding Giannis? No, no, they don't really have anybody. So the challenge with Milwaukee is they have so many other good shooters that the, you know, using multiple guys to form a wall theory is is more difficult just because if you're maybe you're just going to concede some of those shots to prevent Giannis from just parading to the rim but no I don't see an individual defender and I mean no there isn't anybody I particularly like I really hope that series happens at full health I I actually give would probably give the Bucks more of a chance than a lot of people would in that series just because I think they can out effort the They can out-effort the Nets. They can shoot it almost as well as them from the perimeter. And, 
you know, at least they're going, they can force the Nets into taking exclusively jump shots. I mean, I think that would be a crazy offensive series. I probably would favor the Nets if everyone were healthy, but I mean, when the hell are we going to see that? James Harden, if he comes back even in two weeks from this hamstring issue, there's going to be 14 games for all three of those guys to play together before the playoffs, essentially. Like that's, you're starting to wonder a little bit about just the continuity aspects where they're going to be coming out here like it's an all-star game or Team USA or, or something at this point, having not played together. But uh, I don't know. What do you think on that, Rob? Yeah, I think Jeff Green is probably the closest thing I would say to somebody who might be able to guard him. The other issue I really think, though, is like, are Aldridge and Griffin going to get combined like 25 minutes? Like, you can't have them anywhere near Giannis. Yeah, that's a, a great point, too. And I think I think Steve Nash kind of knows that. And I thought his comments after the Bulls game where he's like, yeah, I don't know if we're going to play big like that. We're telling I mean, probably DeAndre Jordan is your best option to guard Giannis, uh, I yeah, think. Geez. But he's been getting DNPs lately. So I, I don't know. I, like KD is too thin. He's not really physical enough. So you're just going to have to double team, I think. And uh, particularly if, Gian- I mean, a big factor in that series will be if Giannis makes his free throws or not, because they're going to follow the shit out of him probably well, uh, have enough, many like, a time yeah it might be better if aldridge and griffin just foul him enough then they can get them out of the game with some cover and then not have to play them for 25 <laughs> minutes um the thing with that series too just really quick like i think with holiday DiVincenzo, and you can probably start with Giannis on kd i know he's not good good getting through screens but if you're gonna switch anyways like just start with him on kd then switch off him once the screen comes i just think those three matchups are so much i trust that like there's also score obviously but I think any of those matchups is so much better than anything the Nets are throwing at Giannis. And then you've still got Kyrie and Harden, who are, certainly are not Savants defensively either, trying to guard the Bucks guy. So I, I think I'd actually favor the Bucks, but, you know, that's just me, so... What what I'm thankful about there, I mean, beyond really wanting to see the series happen, is we're going to need to get a much better sense of like what this Nets team is. And it, it I think we will hopefully have that by that point. But it is a real challenge about, you know, like because if maybe their offense is just, you know, harder to deny than we think. But we're just we're kind of arguing in the abstract now, though. I think that I think that the theories of it are pretty right. So it will definitely be interesting to see kind of where the, how they look a few weeks, a few months from now. Uh, David, you are next on the air. My bad. Can you David? Me? Yes. Uh, sorry. Uh, I was asking, I was listening to your guys' uh, crystal ball from for 2022 the other day. And you guys, I believe, I believe, Nate, you had the Warriors number two, um, like as your projection. And obviously, since then, there's been a bunch of downturn in terms of what we probably thought the potential of whatever pick we got was going to be. And also clay's prospects of ever getting back to the same level um all of that taking into taking into account do you think that there's any way without making i mean my my basically like my like what would you guys be more in favor of like go going all in for 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 a star in terms of packaging like the minnesota pick and and matching contracts to try and get like a bradley beal or someone like that i mean even if it's unrealistic Uh, My kind of view on it is even like in terms of championship equity, just because of the way I feel about the top five in this draft, the potential of keeping one of those guys, even if even if it means that we won't win another championship with Steph Curry necessarily and just have more of a Dirk route. I think that almost is more of a championship equitable thing, because I don't think that we will be the favorite no matter who we could trade for. Um, Again, I don't I only think it would be worth it to give up that pick if. Uh, if, if it lands four or five, uh, if if we uh, um, like if we decide to trade it, so I want just want your guys' thoughts on that kind of that. 
Yeah, so quickly, uh, I'll let Danny answer the question, but just so everyone else listening knows uh, what he's talking about here, we do an episode every year where we look ahead two years. So the 2022 crystal ball, we did that in, I think it was right after the pandemic started in 2020. So this is basically a year ago from now, looking ahead to who we thought uh, would be, we do a bunch of stuff like All-NBA and whatnot, but to who we thought would be one of the best teams in the West. And neither, if I remember, Danny, you can correct me if I'm wrong, neither of us really liked the Warriors that much, but we felt like, hey, they're going to have Steph Curry, Clay will be back, they've got the Minnesota pick, and they'll have a high lottery pick in 2020, which ended up becoming James Wiseman. So we felt like, hey, at least they're going to be, and we know they're going to spend and they're going to try. So we think they had a better chance of than, say, the Lakers where LeBron might be in decline. We didn't know they were going to win the championship, obviously, at that point. And then uh, some of these other teams, we didn't know that Denver would make it to the West Finals, et cetera. So that's kind of what we were thinking at the time. Uh, but then in light of all that, how would you answer his question, Danny? To me, the biggest consideration is that I don't see a player that is simultaneously acquirable that also moves them into tier a tier one contender now tier one i usually define it a little more narrowly than teams usually that's you know two to four kind of teams or even one to you know one to that if it depending on the year and the warriors need a lot like even with steph clay draymond they you know they're you kind of need you need two closing five guys they don't really have necessarily any great options there maybe you can get somebody for the mid-level but like, I don't think Bradley Beal is that guy. I don't think if you swap, let's say, Andrew Wiggins plus a bunch of picks for Bradley Beal, that doesn't make you a tier one contender. It probably makes you a solid tier two. But that's to me, that's not worth it. And I, I, I did, I talked recently with uh, Tim Kaukami and Andrew Sl- and Anthony Slater. And one of the things I brought up was just the importance of communication. And I think that it sounds like some of the frustration, some of it is just like losing a bunch isn't isn't fun. I mean, I, I do a bunch of different examples of that. I think back to, I covered Steph Curry's rookie year and he, at one point we were just riffing on losing and he's like, yeah, I've lost more times this year than I did in high school and college combined. And that's tough. And I mean, this year isn't quite as, as egregious, but they're still losing more than I think they thought. But the bigger point is just, well, well what are you selling out for? And I don't think the I don't think the return is is strong enough. I don't think that you can become that really high end team, especially because right now we don't know what Clay Thompson is going to be getting. Because remember, this isn't just Clay Thompson after two big injuries. This is also two years older Clay Thompson after those injuries, and he would have had age related regression anyway. Thank you guys so much for letting me uh, answer that. I largely I largely agree because I just don't think that there's a any, any move out there that would be worth leveraging all of that. Um, Especially than just being potentially. I mean, that's 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 like a that's like a KG Paul Pierce. Like like it has that right. downside of losing of losing that of losing that type of equity in the future. And I don't trust our front office or infrastructure like the way that like a Sean Marks that came in and kind of made moves on the on the margins to recover that even in the midst of all that. So well, and it's interesting, David. You can use all. You can also use KG kind of in both respects. Like the the KG trade to Boston made them a championship contender that made them a tier one team i mean i bought into it immediately and you know it is weird for a team as first stumbled at least at that time to to get all the way but then K- 
KG and Paul Pierce going to the Nets, that did not move the needle enough for them. And they gave up a return like it would. And I think that, you know, Nate and I disagreed a little bit on what that Nets team would have been if they were fully healthy and everything like that. But it is important to think about what are, what could you get from this? And then that making it worth it. Now, teams sometimes go off of that anyway, but it usually doesn't work out. So as I just kind of go through here, you, a couple of, of things come to mind. One one is, all right, Bradley Beal is the only star level player that I think realistically could be available. Maybe, I don't think this would be the case, but maybe there would be a package that they could throw out there for Shea Gilgis Alexander if they if they miss the playoffs and then that Minnesota pick is really good and OKC is interested in Wiseman. Maybe they could go there if, if you want to say that OKC thinks that he's not on their timeline, but they got plenty of cap space. I, I think that's pretty unrealistic. So then you're sort of thinking of like, you know, what about a trade for someone along the lines, more like a defensive role player type, like a Miles Turner or uh, OG Ananobi, for example. And would that be enough if Clay comes back? To me, I don't think you want to make that kind of low level of move, giving up one of your good assets until you get those three guys back together. And maybe you can do that at the trade deadline if it looks like, hey, Clay is back. They, they realistically, they get one more piece they could contend. I don't know that you want to go all in for something less than that big star, but I would counteract that by saying it's quite possible that James Weidman, Wiseman's trade value is just going to continue to decline. It's and possible. that this offseason may be the best that it ever is. And because maybe he just, because if he doesn't develop at all next year and he's not a piece that's actually helping them win games next year, at that point, then it's just like, all right, maybe you could get a low level of first for him and that's it. So you, if you better be damn sure that he's going to look really good next year or you need to trade him this offseason. Uh, Nate, a quick one. I, I brought up this riff on that pod I did. Um, Jaron Jackson on the Warriors. Yeah, that is that would be really interesting. He would be a wonderful fit with Draymond. Obviously, there's a concern about his injury history. We'll see. He's supposed to come back at some point, you know, maybe in like two weeks or whatever. And maybe Memphis would feel like they don't want to pay him. But I mean, do they they want Wiseman more than Jaron Jackson, or do they want? Would you do the Minnesota pick and Wiseman for Jaron Jackson? I would not. Yeah, you said you would. I would not. Yeah, I especially with his health stuff. That. I might think about that if you if you believe that he was healthy. I think I might because part of that is just I mean if Wiseman keeps playing this bad, I think you got to feel and yeah, there's all the excuses in the world for him, but you would have wanted him to show more at this point, and then just the fit with Steph and Draymond as well. It's just really maybe with Clay back, it can all look better because you have that second elite shooter. I don't know, but uh, I mean the the chances to me of James Wiseman ever being as good as Jaron Jackson Jr. are really low, and the fit of Jaron Jackson Jr. offensively is wonderful, whereas with Wiseman. It's not really. I mean, we've talked about this ad dozen that Draymond is just such a weird player offensively that it's just hard to play another center with him. It is. Um, John, you are next on the air. Can you hear me? Yes. Cool. Um, so I was listening to the uh, 15 and 60 the other day, um, and you guys were talking about possible or the how Al Horford being shut down. Um, I was just curious about what you guys think could be some possible fits for him this offseason, and if there aren't any, the likelihood that he remains with the roster for the beginning of the season that maybe looks to be dealt next trade deadline. I'll say at the outset yeah. that I need can think about some teams that in the interim, I actually really like Horford's fit on the Thunder. I think that having a, you know, the Thunder have have plenty of other talent deficiencies, but having a pick and pop big with, with Shea Gilgis Alexander, I 
think has really helped. And Nate's brought up the distinction before of, you know, what, what kind of thing you want in your pick and roll guy. If he's more of a, a diver, a driver, you want somebody who can space the floor just because that gives them more room to operate. But if they're not getting all the way to the rim, then maybe then you want somebody who can, who can crash and you can, you can go that approach. And so I think that Shea's looking great because he's also Shea Gildas Alexander and he's a very good player. He's far better than I expected him to be, but Horford does really help in that respect. And if they ever had commensurate talent at the other positions, then that would make a world of difference in terms of where Horford. So one really interesting Horford fit is I I don't expect them to do it is Dallas. And the idea basically being that if they ever wanted to pivot from Porzingis and yes, they're the age related and all that stuff. I would actually love the Horford Doncic connection. I think that could work reasonably well. I got one for you, Danny. And this team could just take on most of his salary this offseason. Charlotte Hornets. Sure. I was going to say, uh, the, I, I, I mean, David Griffin went in a different way, but the New Orleans, the New Orleans Pelicans. I mean, <laughs> if you want, if, yeah. if you well, face they, it. They've already got Steven Adams. They're committed to him, I guess. Yeah, um, Charlotte, I'm, I'm on board with you. I think that he would make them he would make them better. And the other the other thing that I like about Horford from Charlotte's perspective is, yes, he's paid a lot of money, but he's only paid a lot of money for a short period of time. So that way you get a year to kind of see what works. And yes, if they could get a center, like if, if especially if they like you could with OKC, I don't think OKC is going to have the leverage to say we need to make this trade by, you know, July 1st or it's non-union equivalent. Um, we have to do it that way. Instead, Charlotte can go after Rashawn Holmes. They can see what they get in the draft. They can go that way. And and honestly, Horford might be a good fit if they end up drafting a center because then you can have Horford for a year, not only the veteran mentor stuff, but also just the idea, something that the Warriors are actually a good example of is that most centers, when they come into the league, just like most players in any position, are negative players. And so if you can have somebody who you can show the ropes, give them some time in different circumstances. Yeah, I, I like Charlotte quite a bit. Uh, another one that occurs to me might be uh, Washington. Now, the construct that OKC would want to do is that they would want bad salary coming back, and then maybe you can get a first for Horford because he's better than that bad salary that's coming back. So <laughs> maybe uh, Russell Westbrook for, for Al Horford. Just kidding. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm not sure who that would be from Washington's perspective. I, 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 have, just, I have one other yeah. Horford destination, and theoretically, okay, yeah, yeah. All the Sacramento Kings. I think you I think it would really help really help certain elements of their offense. And of course it would it would be interesting from OKC's perspective and from Monty McNair's perspective, but he healed would very possibly be in that trade. Assessing positive negative value on the Oklahoma product would be complicated. Yeah, maybe if Toronto re-signed Kyle Lowry, they they could go in that direction, but they don't really have that bad salary coming back. It's just tough because a team that really wants to win is the team that's gonna trade for Al Horford. There really aren't very many teams that want to win that also have really bad contracts out there i mean the knicks could also do it into cap space they have a lot of different options with what they're doing i mean i i would actually in many ways rather see nerlens come back i think he's been very good this year yeah. but they could consider Hor- horford would would help because you know rj and randall are just not really great shooters so he could right. space it out for them that, that that's one that would make sense too so it's really i think it's either a team just taking them into cap space thinking that that's a better use of their money than someone they could sign this offseason or it's and you know maybe okc just gets a second or something just to get off of and they just have the cap space which they already have plenty of anyway that probably seems more likely but also maybe okc doesn't want to do that maybe they feel like it's just better to keep horford around through the trade deadline so if i had to guess 
I would say greater than 50% chance he is not on another team unless he uh, buys himself out with significant savings. That's maybe the other possibility. Good question, though. That's uh, Horford is an interesting player because he fits a, a lot of places and hopefully he's rebuilt his brand a little bit in, in OKC this year. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. Next question is Larry. You are on the air. Larry, you there? Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, Brayford. Yeah. Warriors fans. Sorry for so many Warriors questions. But I was curious about Steve Kerr's offense. Um, I was looking at some of their like actions. Like, it's like pretty recognizable because we ran it so often. But I was looking at like the same actions in 2015. And like now, and one of the things I noticed, right, is teams are, are switching a lot more often now than compared to like six years ago, right? But so that's why I was looking at the Warriors actions now. And none of them seem to, you know, create the seams that you guys like talk about, right? In 2015, there were a lot of um, um, like people going under screens and letting Clay Thompson shoot threes and whatnot. There's a lot of confusion created. But now, all these like off-ball screens just don't seem to be creating the separations or any of the seams, right? You're like, am I crazy or is that something that you guys observe too? They've definitely caught up. The league has to some degree. And not only because of Steph and the Warriors, they've been in the spotlight for five straight finals, obviously. So everyone was chasing after them and, and everyone coming up was like, how are we going to deal with these guys? Uh, so that's part of it. Uh, but also Clay Thompson isn't playing this year. And so if you only have one guy that you have to worry about instead of two who are just two of the greatest shooters of all time that you just cannot give an open look coming off a screen, then it becomes much easier to defend. So I think, you know, going back to the 2019 playoffs, it still looked pretty darn good for those guys. So I think it's more about the talent drain than it is the offense and also just the, the lack of understanding in the system for guys like Wiggins and Oubre as well. I think there have been times when it's it looked pretty decent, but I, I agree with you. I, I do think that Kerr's offenses the last two years have underperformed the talent that's been available and that without Steph out there in particular, it's a, a real slog for them. Yeah, so sorry, just another quick follow-up question. is like, Have there any coaches, I don't like Warriors fans want Kerr to change the system, but I mean, how easy easy to change an offensive system in the middle of the season without training cap. I feel like it's pretty difficult. It is. Surely. And, and and especially this year when it's not only no training camp, but also basically no practices. I mean, remember that there, it, there are very, very few times for any team during the second half of this year where they're getting multiple consecutive days off. Like I, there was one team I was looking and they played like Sunday, Wednesday. And I'm just like, what is this sorcery? Like that's not really happening uh, much this, much this year. And so, yeah, it, it's very hard to change that horse midstream. You can add elements, and I think we've we've seen a few games where the Warriors ran more pick and roll and a few other a few other things. But in terms of the overall scheme, it takes a lot longer. And and some coaches, you know, they're not even. It's not about the time to to incorporate. It's just that they don't necessarily want to do it. So, I'm going to be interested in in terms of what the Warriors want to do. And something Nate got at, which I think is is an important point. And, you know, I've I've gone in different directions on on Kerr over time. I mean, I was the, one of the first and early, strongest advocates for Mark Jackson to get fired in the first place, is that Kerr, like, it's basically that, that there hasn't ever really been a cogent philosophy in terms of personnel or in terms of scheme when Curry's been off the floor. And so not all of that is his fault. You know, like, it's when Brad Wanamaker is your backup point guard and what Brad Wanamaker is worst at is generating good shots from and others, it's going to be hard to make it look good. But I think that over time, like the Warriors not having backup point guards, the Warriors not having those secondary and tertiary creators who can step into a primary role, it's kind of a, it's a chicken and egg situation, but in terms of failure. 
earlier where I don't know which side to blame because they've both been wrong for so long that I don't know which one's at fault. All right. Thanks, you guys, so much. Thanks, Laurie. Um, we will move on to uh, CT. CT, you are on the air. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Um, I just have a question. Um, I'm a big Nuggets fan, and uh, Aaron Gordon was really um, ever since Jeremy Grant left in the offseason, they kind of uh, were missing a wing defender. So I actually have two questions. Um, as far as the Nuggets' chances in the West now, how would you think they stack up else? And also, is Denver going to be able to pay um, Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon uh, in the offseason? So I'll take the second part first uh, about the payment. The offseason, this offseason doesn't matter that much. Gordon is eligible for an extension that would be a little over $20 million per season. There seems to be a thought that there's no way he would take that. And obviously, if they do well, the odds of him taking that extension decrease just because you can't increase off of what he's currently making. I think he makes $16 million in the final year of that deal, the declining salary. That's one kind of downside for the player of that declining salary if you're trying to do an extension. Uh, and Porter Jr., he will be eligible for an extension, but that doesn't actually kick in until the 22-23 season. So he could sign that contract next offseason, but it wouldn't kick in until the next year. So they're good for next year. The question becomes then what happens the year after that. And given the way Michael Porter Jr. has been playing lately, I'm sure he will be looking for the max. If he doesn't get that, it'll be over $25 million a year, you would think. And that's what Gordon is looking for as well. And then you also throw in the possibility of Nikola Jokic getting the veteran or uh, designated player veteran extension, which would be 35% of the salary cap uh, as well, which would kick in during that period. And that was the long answer. The short answer is I don't think they can keep all of them well, unless they're going to pay significantly. Right, and, and I, I think that in Denver's circumstance, it is important to, even if it's just beating a horse that has been dead for a half decade, it is important to note that the can question is yes. They have bird, sufficient bird rights on Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. to do it. Now, will ownership finally even uh, attempt a tentative, be, green light a tentative dive into the luxury tax? We'll have to see. But I think it's important to emphasize that, that it's like can, can and will and functional can are yes. all kind of different points here. And that's part of why, yeah. you know, my, I think, I think the Cronkies might be able to afford it if they wanted to. Yeah. And that's a part of why I say, you know, ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA is because they have made the luxury tax in such a way that teams can choose to do it. They can choose to do it temporarily and some don't. And that gives, you know, teams a, a, a big advantage there, but let's get into the, the, the real meat of it. And I have been impressed um, watching some of the preliminary returns on, on Gordon with the Nuggets, his, fit offensively I've actually been more impressed with than his fit defensively though not not say it's bad it's just been the offensive fit is so great it does improve their chances relative to where I thought they were like I was thinking of this Nuggets team this year and I'm a bigger believer in Gary Harris than most that you know they would have a real problem if the Clippers you know kept their heads and the Lakers were at full strength against those teams and and I'm feeling a little bit more positive about it now I'm not saying I'm giving them I'm not I'm making the Nuggets right now the favorites if those teams are healthy but it's more than a puncher's chance right now and that is definitely not where I was before I'm not going to put odds on it because I kind of want to see all these teams for longer than a week and a half but I'm feeling much better I'll say that yeah I think they got as good a chance of anyone outside of that 
Clippers at full strength, Lakers at full strength. I, I'd put them in the group below there. And, you know, I think it, compared to Utah or Phoenix, I, I think they're right in that group. Right. I, I would agree, too, because, um, you know, just going back two years, you know, that they've, you know, extensive playoff experience, um, you know, two, three, one deficits as well. Um, like, I, I really think they could beat the Suns and, and the Blazers and those teams. I just think the question is going to become, you know, can they beat the Clippers again? And then uh, the Lakers, obviously, last year was a big challenge for them. They couldn't they couldn't beat them. But, um, you know, they get Will Barn back. Porter Jr. is another year experience. So I think they, uh, they'll have a good chance, but it's going to be tough for sure. And also, a lot depends on home court, too. I think if, if they're trying to go in and win games in Utah, I think that could become could become pretty difficult, even if on a neutral court. I might say that those teams are relatively even in terms of a, a playoff matchup, as we saw, obviously, last year. Thanks, CT. Uh, Brad, you are now on the air. Brad, are you there? Uh, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I was wondering what you guys thought of the coaching job that Steve Nash is doing in Brooklyn these days. We just talked about that, ironically enough, when we recorded something uh, about an hour and a half ago. I think he's oh, not getting so enough credit. I think it's been really good. Yeah, and and – when you think about something that that I try to consider for a, a how somebody's doing on a coaching job, and we'll use Nash as kind of the proxy for the whole staff because just just as if when sometimes they get blamed for things people within their staff don't do well, and, I, and you deserve credit when other people on your staff are doing it. We you have a, a you know a titular figure at the top whether they deserve it or not, and is that in functional ways. Brooklyn's personnel has changed so much over the course of this year, and we've seen some of their approaches, some of their philosophies change with it. And a lot of teams don't do that. We just got had that conversation with with Larry about the Warriors, you know, that 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 they're that they haven't changed as much and everything else like that. And it, I've been very impressed defensively, going to more of a switching approach, having guys be able to step into different roles, step into larger roles. And yes, Bruce Brown is a talented guy. I've liked him for a long time. Claxton, I didn't know very well because he missed so much of last year. But when you consider the kind of swirling, changing tides that they've had to deal with in terms of player availability and just the roster changing over, I've been incredibly impressed. Yeah, I've been impressed too. I I really loved Kenny Atkinson and the 18-19 Nets, so I I was bearish on him coming into the season. But I like that he experiments. I like that he tries a bunch of different weird stuff and then acknowledges when it seems like it doesn't go well. Um, And I I just, the only thing that I'd criticize is it seems like he's playing these stars too many minutes. Um, and now Harden's hurt in addition to Durant missing two months. And I'm, I'm worried about that, but I also think he's done a pretty good job on balance. Yeah. Um, I think we're, I think we're in pretty firm agreement there. Um, Lance, you are up and I appreciate as the son of a Montreal, as of the son, the son of a Montreal, or I am not myself. I appreciate the expo set. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, Danny, my question is mostly for you and actually inspired my question, but Nate, I'd like to get your take on it as well. Uh, around the trade deadline, uh, Danny co-wrote or co-authored a piece with Chris Kirchner uh, about Trey Young and possibly uh, finding a backcourt mate pairing with Lonzo Ball. And I believe you had said in that article, uh, Lonzo checks most of the boxes that uh, Atlanta would be looking for, but didn't check all of the boxes. And I was curious if there is a player out there that would check all of the boxes that would maybe be reasonable attainable for Atlanta going forward? Yeah, that that is a good question. Um, so if I'm thinking about the the main kind of attributes that matter and don't matter next to Trey Young, having somebody who can create with the ball in their hands is is obviously less important, though not you know not unimportant because you, I I think you want to have at least two players who can create in those circumstances in case you know like we've seen with the Blazers over time you know doubles traps all that kind of fun stuff and Trey Young is getting to the point where he's good enough where you have to worry about that more. 
But to me, the, the, the key thing, one of the key things that you want, the most important is somebody who can defend on ball. Just with the nature of the modern NBA, you want somebody who can navigate through screens really well, somebody who can handle the different types of creators that are there. Now, you're not necessarily going to, like, I'm thinking more of somebody who can handle, you know, what's, let's call them six foot three and below guards. If you could have somebody who could do six foot six and below, that'd be great, but I'm not going to demand that. Defensively, like a Gary Harris type. Yeah, a Gary Harris type, Marcus Smart, you know, somebody, somebody in that, in that mold. Um, and then that player, so that's one box that they have to check. The other one that they have to check is be able to at least hit open three-point shots. And and the reason there is that they're going to be generated within the flow of the offense, whether it's Trey Young and John Collins or Capella or somebody they don't even have yet. Um, you're going to generate looks for those ancillary players. But more importantly, the worse that shooter is, the more difficult the life is going to be for the primary action and so you could think about you know like that was the limitation with chris dunn i i I think chris dunn is a wonderful defensive fit especially with the turnovers he forces but he doesn't do that and so is there a a player that checks both of those boxes that is i've got one for you danny okay a player that the Hawks could have drafted number six overall this year. Gary's <laughs> Halliburton. Yeah. 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 I mean, Halliburton's not quite as good of like the on ball lock you up, get over screens defender that you would like to have there. But other, I mean, you know, th- that player, the you know, prime clay Thompson doesn't exist uh, in the league right now. There's a reason why he w- was, we always drafted him in our all-star drafts, like first basically among the reserves, but yeah, I mean, Tyrese, I, I think he's going to be better than Lonzo Ball. He's already got more pick and roll ability. He's already a better shooter than Lonzo. He may not get as strong, but I, I think he's going to be better than Lonzo. And so that that's one that uh, really got away, sadly, from um, uh, this Hawks team. He's lower lower tier, but I would be interested in seeing the Hawks roll the dice on Matisse Thibel. I mean, Thibel is an unbelievable defensive playmaker, and he's not perfect, to be sure. And and the jump shot is is a huge question mark. But basically, if I were to pick somebody who can do one and and don't necessarily trust the other, I would actually go with the defender who has you know has some inkling of shooting. Not if it's like an MKG level shooter, obviously. But I guess we're going to have to update our examples there because now it's been long enough since Michael Kikirikos was relevant. Anyway, um, but I, I, I think that Thibault, because of like the gifts that he has defensively, like, he's a kind of he's not the same kind of defender as Chris Dunn. But I think that I would rather roll the dice on Thibault than Dunn if I had to choose kind of one or the other. I just don't think of him. I think of him as more of a three. And I think he's he's just two. If he's your two, I mean, your two is supposed to be like your best off ball shooter. I think you're just you're too limited there. Eric Gordon might be an interesting one Ooh. if he could stay healthy. I don't love but, him on yeah. ball as much. I think that if you were going to run maybe more of a little bit of a switching system, that would be interesting. And I mean, his yeah. former teammate Clint Capella is, is on the Hawks. Maybe maybe you go that approach and just say if Trey Young if Trey Young is the guy that they switch onto, we'll figure something out. Yeah. I actually, I mean, truthfully, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I had a quick one. Yeah, I had a quick one on a run by. What, what, what would you think of the fit with maybe a Malcolm Brogdon? Yeah, that Brogdon is really just more of an on-ball guy. I think maybe a little bit too much. And I also you're talking about offense. You're talking about offensively for clarification. Yeah, offensively, and then defensively, he's kind of a bigger body, not not a great defender of ones either. I think it's okay. Uh, I'm not sure I like him that much better than than uh, Bogdan either. I think Bogdan just because he's been out he quietly, he's started to play better lately. He's not a terrible fit there next to Trey. I don't think. No, I agree. If we if we can get Trey to stop standing behind 
five feet behind the three-point line when Brogdon gets the ball, it would, it would actually be great if he'd actually work off the ball <laughs> a little bit. But yeah, every, everybody wants Trey to work off the ball more and, and be more active off the ball. But sadly, anytime anyone else gets off the ball, he just kind of stands there. My my great hope is that James Harden and his limited activity off ball is not the template for the next generation. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be Steph Curry there, but... I mean, Nate and I got so excited when we were doing the NBA cast and Luca did a few things off ball. He like actually tried and we're like, oh my God, look at how, how this can actually work. And the it, it's sort of the perimeter analog of the idea that I've talked about a few times about how big men setting good screens actually does more for them than they think, where it's like, I mean, I go crazy about this with Christoph Porzingis all the time, which is like, generally speaking, if you set a good screen, they're going to scramble to guard that guy. And then you're going to be the one who's wide open. And it's not always about, you know, sometimes it's a spiddly dude and he just can't really set good screens. But it's kind of the same thing with moving off ball. It is more effort and some, you know, it is, you know, arguably unsustainable for 40 minutes. But if you can pick your spots, I think it makes a world of difference. Guys, I really appreciate the discussion. Thanks very much for uh, letting me jump in. Absolutely. Um, It just so happens that we are out of speaker requests and we are also out of time. Um, Nate and I are going to watch the the rest of the games Tuesday. We're going to do Tuesday Gamer for Dunked on Prime. But thank you to everybody for asking such great questions. We had some good stuff in the discussion, the discussion area as well. So thank you so much for joining us. And we, Nate and I, will be back next week, same time, um, Tuesday, six or sorry, six o'clock Eastern, three o'clock Pacific. Always fun to do this. At Bet three six five, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play—from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.